Hello and welcome to Media Lit, where we treat each piece of media like great literature. Joining me once again today is Chris Ingersoll. He is an actor and voice actor and my new favorite nerd. Uh, If you've been with us before, you know that Chris is a huge Batman fan. Uh, And I got all sorts of positive feedback from folks who heard Chris for the first time on that episode. Uh, But I also received the deepest criticism of myself as a host. And that is uh, I left a really important journalistic question sitting on the table. Uh, Chris revealed that he owns more than one bat suit in our previous episode. And despite the fact that that ripe fruit was sitting right there on the ground, I did not ask the obvious follow-up question. Chris, how many bat suits? And, and tell me the story of these. You know, which <laughs> which bat men are they most associated with? Uh, what sort of use do they get? Yeah, I mean, a fair curiosity. I think I set myself up for, for that one. And uh, first of all, just super stoked to be back. Thank you for inviting me to join you again. Um, also really thrilled to be having these nerd conversations with you, one of my favorite new folks. Um, so the most notable bat suit I have, the most recognizable bat suit I have is my Adam West. I've got the, like the Ruby's costume, Adam West, uh, zip up jumpsuit, classic cowl. That was a, a Halloween piece, which now just gets tons of regular action as my go-to bat suit for time with my daughter. It's got a really sweet, uh, utility belt, the, the whole thing. The gloves are a bit wonky. It's my only complaint, but a solid cape, solid cowl. Um, and then I just think, I think, you know, I've got like a Keaton mm-hmm. style cowl. That yes, or my, my Adam, one. right. Yeah. That or my Adam West cowl we each get play in different makeshift versions of, of my bat suits. So I have got like a straight up Keaton look with a, a nice yellow backed bat emblem. Uh, mm-hmm. Tight, tight-fitting shirt goes over some some armor, and and I'm ready to go. Again, former Halloween's now just daily costume play. It's got to be so I don't ramble on forever. At least five different <laughs> unique-looking bat suits that I can cobble together through various parts. Whether it's my uh, my batarangs, my more tactical-looking bat suit. I've got like a black on gray, more um, Bale era Batman uh, vibe. These are all the like Under Armour alter ego compression fit tees that that pair over various costume elements to make a decent look it's amazing stuff thank you so much for sharing that chris um yeah i i too am loving our chats i i think we have many more of them in our future and i'm looking forward to them uh so yeah back when we talked about batman returns i was editing that episode uh we had so much to say i had to make some cuts including uh a little sidebar i went off on about my love for doctor who and that being a formative hero for me uh, and after the episode, uh, after providing a homework assignment for me last time, Chris, you were willing to let me throw some homework your way. Uh, and I challenged you to watch some Doctor Who. And you ultimately came back with with a, a really creative way to to get at this topic of Doctor Who and one of the oldest fandoms out there. Um, now, before I reveal exactly how we're going to get at Doctor Who, um, I just want to take a moment to establish the fact that you are, in fact, a Doctor Who newbie. All right. Hoobie. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I just want to throw a couple of terms that will mean a lot to Doctor Who fans out there into, into the ether. And I'm just curious if if you have, through social osmosis, absorbed what 
what some of these terms might be or have an educated guess as to what the heck we're talking about. Uh, I think you'll find some of these questions have great answers, and and some of them have answers that even uh, Doctor Who fans argue about. So don't feel too badly. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm glad my- you said that because this was the part I was most afraid of. So <laughs> let's go. All right, uh, Chris, uh, do you have any idea what I am talking about if I reference the TARDIS? Okay, I have through social osmosis uh, absorbed enough. Who I think. To be able to answer this relatively confidently, a TARDIS is a time machine uh, shaped like a phone booth, but but more like a spaceship on the inside. Um, that's my general understanding. The TARDIS is the, the doctor's go-to mode of transportation as he traverses time. That's beautiful, Chris. You've got that pretty much exactly right. I, I don't think you said a single thing that is incorrect, uh, but there is even more to unpack and discover uh, below the surface there. I won't try to unpack all of it today because we've got episodes worth of, of TARDIS lore. Uh, but yeah, the that name stands for Time and Relative Dimension in Space. It's an acronym. It sure is. It is an uh, acronym. I, I didn't know that. Uh, so we are moving through space, time, and, and arguably sometimes even dimension. This one's a little bit of a deeper cut. Uh do you have any guess of what I might be talking about if I referenced a chameleon circuit? Uh, no, no, it's the first time <laughs> that wasn't even in. Uh, no, no, I, I, I can only imagine that is uh, some sort of a component part which can mm-hmm. take on various functions as needed for the doctor. Hoping that it's aptly named chameleon. You know, you kept that, I think, just broad enough to be more or less correct. This was this was one of my favorite bits of uh, Doctor Who lore to learn when I was a newbie to the Who universe. Uh, and now this phone box shaped TARDIS uh, from the past, from London's past. Uh, the reason it looks that way is because the TARDIS is a creation of the Time Lords. And these machines, when they travel through time and space... Or they have a chameleon circuit, which allows them to blend in, to appear as something you might expect to see in the background, so as to not draw attention. Uh, and the chameleon circuit allows the TARDIS to do this. However, uh, the chameleon circuit on the Doctor's TARDIS is broken, and uh, <laughs> they've never chosen to fix it. They they love the style of the blue box, and it, it's here to stay. So once upon a time, the Doctor was on an adventure. The chameleon circuit was working. It took the form of a of a phone box in London, and it's just been stuck that way ever since. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, if if I was able to entice any Doctor Who fans to, you know, sign in, listen to this podcast, uh, I just want to be straight with you right now. Um, I am a newbie when it comes to classic Who. I came in with the 2005 version. Uh, I got into this around the 50th anniversary special in the year or two leading up to that, uh, when BBC America was posting all sorts of explainers on the doctors, a lot of historical documentaries and things like that. So I absorbed as much as I could, but I don't have that full story connection that I should have. But my understanding, Chris, is uh, the doctor was kind of camped out on Earth for a while, more or less in hiding, more or less off the adventuring trail and uh, kind of got pushed back into 
this life of, of more of a, a traveler and a, a hero to some, a danger to others. Yeah. Interesting. I, I yes, assume that has yes. something to do with why he's a British man. We can we can apply some story elements to that if we'd like, but I think maybe this is a, a, a creation of the BBC and that <laughs> right. is the main reason. <laughs> uh, right. All right. Next next question. Uh what is a Dalek? A a, a Twilight? A Twilek from Texas? <laughs> that is an absolutely uh beautiful guess. Uh, this is the most iconic of all Doctor Who villains. Uh, they are, they would appear to be robots if you don't know Doctor Who. Uh, you know, they they famously mm. kind of jokingly look like a salt shaker. They have a little attachment sticking out the front that is a, a plunger. It's, uh, you know, in some ways, this very silly uh, low budget prop from the past. Uh, but it's also struck this iconic look and been spiced up and jazzed up for the modern Who era uh, in different ways. Uh, but they are not robots. There are living biological beings inside. They destroyed their their own planet in becoming warlike. Um, they believe themselves to be a superior race, and they are the main rivals of the Doctor and all Time Lords. Uh you may have heard their famous refrain, exterminate. Yes. Yes. Okay. So but these, they are organic beings. Un- underneath all that armor. Yeah. They, they had to build this armor to survive their own planet. They destroyed it so horribly uh, through nuclear war and other elements. It became uninhabitable in their natural biological form. Wow. What a totally unfamiliar, not at all haunting potential reality. Yeah, still still quite relevant. <laughs> sad, sad to say how true that is. All right, I've got two more of these, um, and then I will stop torturing you, Chris. But uh, uh, what is a sonic screwdriver? A, a real tasty cocktail, and maybe a blue one? There must be some really delicious custom cocktails out there named after the sonic screwdriver. Uh, I love that it's blue. Uh, so my understanding is the sonic screwdriver was an occasional... Uh, prop from the classic who days uh it's it's basically uh to use the the parlance of across the spider verse it it's a goober it's, a, it's goober. a little mechanical device it can it can do anything it needs to do in the moment until it can't uh it can calculate it can uh, manipulate matter it 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 seems to do just about anything and everything and even fans can't agree on what a sonic screwdriver is. Uh, every once in a while, they try to change up the form and look of the sonic screwdriver, and there's sometimes an outcry from fans. Uh, but as I've known it in New Who most of the time, it's just a little more or less screwdriver-shaped thing with a blinking light on the end that kind of became larger and more phallic as the seasons went on. <laughs> yes, that's... Uh, but they're they're fun props to own. I own I own one prop sonic screwdriver uh, from the the David Tennant era. So so there okay. you go. I feel like sci-fi genre storytelling in general it needs <laughs> goobers, right? Like at some point, oh yeah, the science breaks down. You're just being imaginative, and you you need a, a thing that fans won't think too long and hard about, right? Absolutely. And uh, the, this final one is one I think you probably have some idea of what I'm talking about here, but. Uh, what is a regeneration in the context of Doctor Who? Regeneration is the method by which one doctor 
becomes the next iteration of the doctor that we as, as TV viewers will come to know. Yeah. One of the most uh, brilliant sci-fi inventions of all time to keep a franchise alive. Uh, The doctor will retain their memories, but become a new person with a new personality, a new vibe, a new energy. Um, They don't forget who they were, but they're a slightly new version of themselves. And, and there's so much to unpack there psychologically as, as we human beings become new versions of ourselves through the years. So that that's one of my favorite things about this character. That's really interesting to me that the, the memories are retained, but there's a way in which they, they try and portray that there is a different personality at work, right? And not, not a personality that grew out of the old one, but a totally different one. Exactly. And, uh, if I ever entice you back for a future Doctor Who episode, I'm sure we'll talk about this. Uh, I love to theorize about what some of the the previous companions do to inspire the new version of the Doctor on a subconscious level. Um, I think they're often, to a certain extent, a response to the people that the Doctor has traveled with, and uh, I love I love that about the regenerations. Very cool. All right, uh, moving on to the the personal bespoke torture chamber i just set up for chris uh we're going to move on to the next section uh i already covered some of this ground where i just want to establish my doctor who credentials uh i would say uh, i am fairly well versed in new who starting back in 2005 and up through the present Uh, i've remained a a fairly loyal fan throughout most of that Although I will admit to, to falling into a little bit of a hiatus um, a few years ago around the COVID era, there wasn't as much volume from the fandom anymore. There was so much great television on. Life was busy. I kind of fell off of some of my Doctor Who watching for a bit, uh, but was really happy to to finally catch back up in the past year leading up to the recent 60th anniversary special uh, and a newfound burst of energy and excitement for the franchise. So uh, I'm on board. Um, in the last few months, I've started doing some coverage uh, for the Pop Break online magazine, uh, where I reviewed the 60th anniversary specials, and I made some fun podcast appearances talking about it. Uh, and somewhere in that process, I became uh, a champion for Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor. And, uh, you know, I found that those are the best of the Doctor Who fans are the the folks who who stand for Jodie Whittaker are are a great crew. So we, it's been a good time. I think you're you sound bona fide to me, man. At least new. Who oh, thank bonafide. you, thank you. So Chris, we know you're a Batman fan. We know you are new to Who. We established this. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the realm of sci-fi, do you have any favorite franchises or stories? These could be films, movies, books, whatever, comics. Totally. I mean, I'm a I'm a Star Wars kid. I remember the uh, the trilogy on VHS that my my dad's best friend, my uncle Murph, bought for us when I was uh, probably too young to be watching old Star Wars movies. Although I guess perhaps <laughs> not. What do you really know when you're a kid? Um, and so I remember that that box. I remember the the gold Vader head on it. Um, and so I was Star Wars, not Star Trek. Not for any dislike of Star Trek. It just wasn't really a part of my world. I remember Next Generation on when I was a kid but no one in my life watched it. My friends didn't. And so I was squarely, if you asked me a versus question, it was very squarely a Star Wars kid. And then just like general, I'm a movie head. Uh, my family was big on movies. So absorbed a ton of sci-fi that way. Uh, E.T., 
Aliens, Contact was a favorite sci-fi flick for me. That did a great job of blending the, the philosophical, the religious, the sci-fi. That was a, that was a great ride. Um, Planet of the Apes. I'm ashamed to mm-hmm. say that as a kid, not knowing any better, the, the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes film was just like fun for me. Um, I, I can't imagine how well it holds up with some distance, but as a kid, that worked just fine. And I thought that was such a cool concept. I was really taken with it. Mm-hmm. But then I'm I'm excited to mention when when I knew this question was coming. Do you remember Galaxy Quest? Are you a fan at all of Galaxy Quest? Such a fun movie. I absolutely love that movie. Right? <laughs> um, I'm like a low-key Justin Long super fan. Uh, I'm like really oh, invested lovely, in the lovely. ongoing, yeah, the ongoing <laughs> career of Justin Long. Shout out to Goose, uh, mm-hmm. Goosebumps, great little series this past winter. Uh, so Galaxy Quest for me is like that Star Trek surrogate. I don't know anything about Star Trek really, other than what was portrayed on Galaxy Quest. You know, I my Trekkie background is light. Um, I, you know, I had a cousin who was a big Star Trek The Next Generation fan. So I would kind of like hang around and watch some episodes here and there with her. I, I thought, you know, Sir Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard was like, was this very cool, striking figure. I, I was fascinated by him, fascinated by by his resemblance to Professor X of the X-Men, even before he was inevitably cast in that role. We all knew it was coming. Right. Uh, you know, I think when the movie came out, I think I deeply wanted to believe that I was the only person who ever made that connection beforehand, you know, before realizing how silly that is, because it's the most obvious casting choice, perhaps, of all time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like one that you wonder which came first. Did they start drawing Professor X to look like Patrick Stewart or or what? Um, I think that happened with Nick Fury and and. Mm. Uh, Sam Jackson. I'm fairly certain that he was drawn in the comic books to look like Sam Jackson before Samuel L. Jackson was ever cast in the role. Yeah, and I, th- I think without his permission as well, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I think so. And they were just like, "Yeah, totally, we did that, and we would we would love it if we could keep doing that." <laughs> I guess it ultimately worked out okay for Marvel uh, in the end. <laughs> yeah, and, and Samuel L. Jackson as well, right? Um, for sure, for sure. Secret Invasion aside. <laughs> Um, I, I love all of your callouts. I would say my pre who sci-fi background is pretty similar to yours. Um, the only other influence I would add in there is, uh, you know, in my post-college years, I was going through a lot of genre television I had missed. And, uh, one other show I blew through just before Dr. Who for the first time, uh, was the 2004 reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Mm. And uh, that that trampoline to the forefront of my my science fiction, um, just knowledge and viewpoint and to see what a what a raw show that was like with all the sci fi. It was such a realistic uh, response to the politics of, of the world in that time period. It was really beautiful. Um, and Doctor Who, it, it can do all of those things, too. It, it can be camp. It can be silly. It can be fun. Uh, but it can hit some dark and grim and serious notes from time to time. And I think you got a taste of that uh, for the episode you watched today. Now, Chris, the way this show works is I invite guests on to assign me a homework assignment. Uh, and then if I can convince them to come back, uh, I'll often throw a homework assignment their way. We can, we can go back and forth. We can find some things to do together. Uh, but for this visit... Uh, because this was homework I, I kind of pushed you in the direction of. I was hoping you could jump into the host chair for a second 
uh, and asked Ooh. me a couple of those those personal formative questions about what Doctor Who means to me. Yeah, I am so excited to learn more about who uh, from you. So let me get my little host hat on. Randy, <laughs> what is an early and or important memory connected to Doctor Who? I graduated from college. I uh, had my own television and computer and some money at my disposal. Streaming uh, through Netflix was becoming more and more manageable. More and more things became available. I watched all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I watched Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Doctor Who was on my list of things to try. Um, and I finally got there. And, you know, additionally, this was a this was a tough moment in my life because these were also during uh, the years that my father was was struggling with ALS before he passed away about a decade ago. Um, so sharing stories with him was something that was really valuable. And it was also quite a comfort uh, after we lost him because I was really close with my father. And we had a really special relationship and he was a very cerebral guy who liked to think and who loved stories. Uh, so great storytelling, I, I think, really helped me feel connected to him. So I think there was something about this doctor character um, mm -hmm. who wants to think first, who wants to negotiate first, who wants to problem solve first, uh, who doesn't always want to be vulnerable, but is capable of showing emotional vulnerability. He's not wrapped up in, in machismo and toxic masculinity most of the time. Uh, we're we're going to have to take the doctor to task uh, at certain points in his tenure. But at the end of the day, he's a guy who likes to think more than he likes to fight. And and yeah, just my life was changing as I was falling and falling in love with Doctor Who. Um, you know, the day that I found out uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child, um, mm. you know, uh, as much as I love Doctor Who, it's the memory of you know, learning I was going to be a dad that matters here. Uh, but because that's such a powerful moment, I specifically remember, you know, hitting pause on a season three episode of Doctor Who uh, gridlock because uh, my wife wanted to chat with me. And, you know, it turned out <laughs> this was the conversation we were having. So I'm not sure how long it took me to get back to finish that episode, uh, but I, I eventually got there. Uh, but I remember being interrupted specifically in that moment because it was such a such a formative moment. And, and yeah, uh, I've got a really great family. So I even got to do some bonding with my sister and my mother. We watched a lot of doctor who together in some of those days we were all hanging out. So, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a deep family connection there for me. Oh man, that is, that is really beautiful. I think, uh, it's one of my favorite things about story, right? How well, mm -hmm. uh, they they connect us while we're together and how they, they bind us even when we're apart. Um, I'm really glad that who has been that for you. What a what a beautiful story. Um, cool, man. Well, let me ask you next. What How does this piece of media influence your interests, your values, your style? Is there any who in you now, Randy? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, I think I, I think I started to step on the toes of this answer when I was talking about my relationship with my dad and what this doctor represents. That's probably the most important part of the answer. But but on a more superficial aesthetic level, uh, really love all things British, English. I uh, love that whole background. Uh, you know, uh, I was a big Monty Python fan. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was transformative for me. Uh, I would occasionally catch some some flying circus on PBS or whatever. Um, 
my aunt who used to babysit us quite a bit watched a lot of PBS. So I spent a lot of time watching Are You Being Served? Uh with her, you know, old <laughs> 70s British sitcom. And I don't I was so little, I don't think any of it ever made sense to me, but I think there was something about the delivery and the vibe and the energy that that I was enjoying, even if I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Um and then my family uh unapologetically absolutely loves Mr. Bean and all things Rowan Atkinson. Um, you know, Mr. Bean is one of those, one of those things that's an acquired taste. And and if it's not for someone, I, I get it. Uh, I, I can wrap my mind around it. Uh, but if you're the type of person who loves Mr. Bean, there's a really good chance we're going to get along. Uh, and then Rowan Atkinson beyond that character is just such a brilliant comic actor. He's got so much clever stand up. But the reason I'm ending on Mr. Bean here. Uh, is I had no idea Mr. Bean was my first exposure to Doctor Who because there was a Mr. Bean sketch that I would watch with my family all the time. In this in this bit, Mr. Bean is at a toy store, and for whatever reason, this toy store uh, is selling a nativity scene. So what happens is the camera pans over to a close-up on the nativity scene, and you see Mr. Bean's hands come down into the scene and he is playing with the figurines like like they're toys. Uh, and he starts like marching other toys into the scene, like soldiers and things. And the wise men are all like shushing the toys as they come in. And like a dinosaur, like, you know, T-Rex comes in at one point. He's having a great time. He's doing all the Rowan Atkinson sound effects. <laughs> uh, and at one point, these little robot toys uh, come into the come into the scene, and it was just part of the joke for me. And then I rewatched it after becoming a Doctor Who fan to realize they were little Dalek toys. They were not robots; they were Daleks. And Mr. Bean was kind of saying the little exterminate line in his sort of like half speech that Mr. Bean would do. And uh, my life came full circle in that moment. Yeah, I mean, who was absent from your life until the right time, right? Uh, it was it was always exactly. waiting for you, but it had to be the right time. <laughs> and uh, I, I love that these these Daleks were coming for the little baby Christ. Um, like that's <laughs> brilliant. I, I will have you know, uh, you know the the Christ figure in the nativity scene is ultimately rescued from all the chaos. Is is how it ends. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Yeah. Herod's Herod's agents, the Daleks, cannot succeed. Uh, awesome, uh, awesome. Lovely. Well. Lastly, let me challenge you a little bit and, and poke at that that who love because you do love this show. But can you objectively say that it has any flaws? Absolutely. Um, the very first episode of New Who is is many fans one of their favorite episodes. Rose, uh, and they are they are correct because it, storytelling wise, it makes a lot of smart choices in how to introduce character. It also has a couple sequences of some of the campiest camp Doctor Who has to offer. And in the moment, I wasn't ready for it yet. I was coming, you know, hot off of Battlestar Galactica, this gritty wartime story. Um, and to see some of the camp and some of the bad makeup effects for for some things, I was not in the right headspace. And I was like, eh, not for me. And I let it sit for a few months before episode two. And I like that one a little bit better. And I let it sit a little bit. 
And uh, it slowly started to pick up steam before it became an unstoppable force. And I was just, I was just in it. Uh, you know, the moment that shifted me was my first introduction to Daleks, but that's a conversation for another day. And the only other flaw with Doctor Who is because it's been around for so long, through so many time periods, through so many eras, so many creators, so many showrunners, there is a hell of a lot of mythology. And this show cannot continue to function without sometimes doubling back on itself, contradicting itself. Um, occasionally, there might be a story beat or a piece of lore that means a lot to you that you will feel has been minimized in some way by a new storyline. Um, now, that means, like any fandom, there is a toxic side of Doctor Who fandom and people who get a little bit carried away with the, the elements that they feel the most married to. Uh, but the Doctor Who fan I have mostly become and the Doctor Who fan that I love out there are the people who are willing to love it despite all of that, to accept that that's part of the fandom that that's part of the fun and to lean into the fun of watching the character evolve and reach new audiences. Uh, so I think you need to know that going in and be ready to be okay with it. Um, Cause that, that, that being said, it can still be a little bit frustrating from time to time. There, there's one of my favorite decisions new who ever made was, was kind of undone in a single episode at one point in a way that really bummed me out because it was it was something I was looking forward to to mining for new material for years to come that became kind of a closed loop. So it, it does run the risk of that. Mm. Uh, but obviously, I love this show. I suppose that's true of of a lot of genre storytelling, especially any that has any legs to it and goes on for, for an extended period of time, right? And comic books are very much that way. And we, we both know comic book fandom can be awfully toxic because you get hung up on the stuff that you really care about. The good news is anything that's been undone <laughs> can be undone again and, and redone. And, and it can all be very circular. So I, I hope for your sake that whatever that storyline was, I hope it comes back around with a little bit more heft. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they, they actually managed to find some more ways to milk it after I thought it was completely done. Uh, but Chris... Uh, you agreed to watch some Doctor Who, but you had some really creative ideas about maybe where you would start with your Doctor Who fandom. So uh, my question for you is, uh, before I pushed you in the direction of Who, did you have any interest in entering into this fandom? Uh, and two, uh, what are we watching today? And and how did we pick it? <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, before your gentle push into the pool of Who, um, I was beginning to feel like this was a gap in my own uh, sci-fi nerd knowledge. It, I needed to at least get some uh, experience under my belt, right? Watch a few episodes, take in a few seasons. I had recently been listening to, I think we both love The House of R, Joanna Robinson, Mallory Rubin. Um, Mal this year did her own uh, who familiarizing so that she could join Joe for those the specials that came out around Christmas time. Uh, and hearing them go down that journey together, I didn't listen to those episodes because I wanted to get in. So I didn't listen to any of their Who recaps. But as they began to talk about it, I said, okay, maybe now is the time. Maybe I should find room in my life for, for some Who. Um, and then just a few weeks ago, uh, a very specific episode was mentioned on an episode of Trial by Content, uh, another podcast that I think we both love. Uh, mm -hmm. They mentioned Heaven Sent as... Uh, 
perhaps the perfect episode, not quite a bottle episode, but something that could be viewed in isolation. Like if you had never seen any who at all, Joanna mentioned heaven sent might be something you could watch and still enjoy. Um, so yeah, when it came time to, to decide how we would enter who together, I said, let's test that theory. Uh, it came up again on the time loop episode of, uh, try by content. Dave, Neil, and Joanna talked a little bit more about Heaven Sent. I said, yeah, this is perfect. I need to watch this episode mm-hmm. and find out how well it really works on its own. Um, so, yeah, I was thrilled to watch this episode now a handful of times in preparation for the podcast. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that great prep, by the way. Uh, I'm going to take a moment to prep uh, our listeners just a little bit here. Uh, you know, last time I wrote a whole summary of Batman Returns, and I think I somehow managed to make the recap of this one episode of television longer, uh, which I did not think was going to happen, but, but there's a lot going on here. So, and you'll love it, Randy, that comes from love. It's true. Uh, as always, uh, you know, let me know if you catch anything that feels off or maybe I failed to emphasize something that, that was essential uh, to you in this episode, uh, there there is surprisingly a lot jammed into this time loop. So here we go. Heaven sent. The doctor materializes inside of a teleportation tube, still writhing with anger over the death of his companion, Clara. He barks out a warning to his unknown and unseen captors and gets to work assessing his surroundings. A strange shifting castle. He soon learns that he is under constant threat from a slow-moving, veiled figure with creepy, inhuman hands. It never stops moving, and therefore neither can the doctor. As the doctor discovers an ocean full of skulls, a creepy garden, and a mysteriously resetting room, it becomes clear that he is imprisoned in some sort of elaborate puzzle. He often escapes into the recesses of his mind, which he visualizes as the interior of his TARDIS, He is often speaking to the absent Clara to help process his thoughts, and she eventually materializes in his mind for a pep talk. After a lot of mapping and exploring, the doctor finds his way to the elusive Room 12. Inside, he finds a large block of asbantium, a mineral harder than diamond, and realizes it is blocking his escape. At this point, the doctor experiences a shocking revelation when he realizes that the word bird written in the sand is a message from himself. He is referencing a fairy tale about a bird that sharpens its beak on a diamond mountain once every hundred years until the mountain is worn away. He realizes he is trapped in a time loop and the only way out is to repeat the loop time and time again until he can punch through the Hispantium wall with his bare hands. While the doctor is tempted to give up the information his captors are after, he decides to win and draws inspiration from the fairy tale. In the end, he exclaims, you must think that's a hell of a long time. Personally, I think that's a hell of a bird. The doctor escapes his prison after four and a half billion years and sends a threatening message ahead to his captors. Uh, Chris, how'd I do? You did fantastic. Uh, you nailed it. I think similar to the Batman Returns recap, it was detailed. It it exemplified some of your own love for the episode. The only thing that I would want to highlight 
is right at the very beginning, because this was so impressionistic mm-hmm. on me as a, as a new viewer, right? The perfect, episode doesn't perfect. open with him coming into the teleporter writhing, and it's not that moment. Ah. First, there's the, the voiceover, the very dramatic voiceover. Uh, and it's who I will come to know as the doctor, telling us, sharing a little philosophy. And it sounds like he's talking about the nature of death, that from the moment you're born, also coming into life is your own death, which one day will eventually catch up to you. Now that, that, that monologue is happening over images of something, a person struggling to bring some gears, some machinery into motion. And then you see like a, a really disgusting, irradiated or, or burnt hand hit a sandy floor and completely dissipate. And then you get <laughs> the doctor in the, in the teleporter. Um, and so I wanted to highlight that only because it was, it pulled me right into this episode, you know, from the moment it opened and that voiceover was happening, I needed to know more. Mm. I really appreciate that edit. Cause you're right. We do start with that philosophical concept and, and to then see them find a way to physically embody that in the veiled figure that that's quite literally moving at that slow pace. It, it's, it's poetry. My first question for you, Chris, I want to dig into this lesson here. I want to take a look at this episode as if it's a piece of literature. Uh, And my first question for you is, you know, what are your impressions of Peter Capaldi as the 12th doctor? Uh, What kind of impact did he make on you? And and did he remind you of any other pop culture characters that mean something to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Peter Capaldi, as I said, that voiceover. I was immediately intrigued, right? There was a certain gravitas to that and I wanted to know more. And then as he steps out of the the teleporter and he makes these bold declarations, right? He picks up the sand and he's immediately threatening somebody, whoever it is that's put him in this puzzle box, whoever it is that's teleported him to this strange location, he is ready to go. He's Mm -hmm. seemingly arrogant, but prepared to back that arrogance up. So we'll call it arrogance as opposed to cockiness, right? I was getting mm-hmm. Sherlock off of him in this episode, right? Somebody who's really brilliant. I mean, a genius is genius. And then cuts through uh, what could be a dull personality with some beautiful dry wit. Like a real sense of, of uh, dark, dark wit. I understand how the world works and I see the humor in it. I also got some Tony Stark with the, with the arrogance mm-hmm. that was coming through. So these were the, the first two hallmarks that Peter Capaldi's doctor was giving him um, sort of an insufferable. I, I wrote in my notes an insufferable genius with, with a heart of gold. That's perfect. And you're right. He could absolutely build something with a box of scraps in a cave. No problem. Uh, now, Chris, I asked you to go into this episode pretty blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might know this possibly from House of R or something else, but do you know that there's a very good reason why you are getting Sherlock vibes off of this doctor at this point in Doctor Who's run? No. Uh, you are you are looking at the work of showrunner Stephen Moffat, also running the Benedict Cumberbatch-led Sherlock. Uh, so it's not a coincidence that we've got a very mind palace thing happening in the middle of this episode okay yes it was very specifically that mind <laughs> palace sequence right where now he's going to run you through mm-hmm. 
all the little calculations he was making while you thought he was just dropping flowers and uh, magnifying glasses and throwing throwing chairs. Um, I loved that sequence, but that was very specifically where it was giving me Sherlock. So that's, <laughs> that's funny to hear. No, I, I absolutely love that. And uh, again, as we've established, my impression of the doctor is not just Capaldi. Uh, it's everyone. But I think I felt this the strongest with Capaldi. As, as far as my pop culture frames of reference for the doctor, going into this fandom... Uh, the closest I could come would be like a Dumbledore or a Gandalf, uh, that that person who seems to have almost all of the answers. But what's so cool about the doctor is there's this again, sometimes the doctor tries to hide it. But there is this vulnerability that we so rarely get from a Gandalf or a Dumbledore. It's like if you could break down and make the personal connections with those guys, Um you know, I think that's why we love hobbits in the Shire so much. The, the, the hobbits seem to be the one beings that can sometimes cut through that with Gandalf a little bit. We get to see see him being a human being. Uh, and, you know, we, I, I've always loved Gandalf more than maybe almost any literary character because he is this almost all-powerful being, but he sees something beautiful in humanity and living life and love and human connection. And that that's something the doctor needs and appreciates as well. Uh, so, yeah, that's something I absolutely love there. So thanks for those great answers. Um, now, the doctor's got all these angles. Uh, and part of that you've already alluded to is this strength of character, this this gravitas, this this confidence. Um, were there any particular moments that jumped out to you where this gravitas comes through? I mean, I know you talked about that initial, like being ready to fight the second he pops out of the teleporter. Uh, but anything else that comes to mind for you? Yeah. So that was the first thing I put in my notes uh, was that that moment coming out because he immediately establishes himself as a badass, whether or not he's physically capable. I don't know, but he's, he put, he's prepared to handle himself. Right. But then also that first survival session, it's not necessarily uh, what he's doing physically. It's the way he's walking us through it in his mind balance, mm -hmm. right? It's the sense of urgency in him, which only begins to mount once you realize that bit of sleight of hand that they've done, that he's not actually telling this story post-survival in his TARDIS, that it's it's mid-survival mm -hmm. um, while he's actually still falling through the air. He's bringing all this urgency in that moment, Capaldi is, and uh, you're just wrapped, right? You watch every every flick of his of his face, every every movement of his body, um, and then during that last montage of escape efforts, you know, as he's um, repeating the loop over and over again, and it's giving us each of those declarations of how much time has passed when he's up on the, the parapet and he's looking at the stars, 200 million years, 2 billion years. There's something in him then that is so shaken. Um, he's, he's just very present and I'm, and I'm there with him. Uh, until finally, right, he's he's telling his uh, his fairy tale and he's punching through the wall. Every bit of that mm -hmm. is so engaging and so rich. And I just, like I said, I, I suspect that this character is a guy who you have to love in order to like. But mm -hmm. in this moment, I'm I'm with him and I want him so desperately to escape this prison that he's been in. And that's all through Capaldi's performance. I love the way you explain that, Chris, because like it is it is like the the badass of it. It's the tough guy of it. You know, um, the first rule of being interrogated is you are the only irreplaceable person in the torture chamber. The room is yours. So work it. You know, there's that. So good that 
that just threaten you with death, die faster. But like you said, it fits better with the vulnerability, right? Um, a moment that really strikes me is is fairly early in the episode. He admits to this image coming straight out of his nightmares, this memory of seeing a woman who's passed away and been covered with veils and it's been haunting him since he was a young child. Um, and that gives gives him weight too, especially like this version of the doctor that's you know more advanced in years than some of the other actors that have, that have played the part in New Who. Um, to admit that that's, that's with him. And even he does this little silly, like popping sound, this little mouth pop when he's, uh, describing that she died. And it's like, he's trying to bring some sarcasm to it, but there's this honesty and yeah, the whole ending sequence is great. I specifically noticed just his ability to sell his devastation in the moment Mm -hmm. where he pieces it together, where the bird and the diamond comes together and you just see the weight of understanding on his face. Peter Capaldi is so talented. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought it back to the vulnerability because you're right. I did note too that it wasn't just in his um, braggadocious nature that I was I was taken in. It was also in those moments where he was ready to give up. Right, it's in his mm-hmm. in, his initial fall. Right when he hits the water, he's like, it would just be so easy to just stay mm-hmm. asleep. Right, and then mm-hmm. in the end, after he realizes it's time loop. He's desperate to just, can't I just lose? Why does it have to be me all the time? And he is so real in those moments. And you feel how desperately mm-hmm. a part of him really wants that, would prefer to just give in. Um, and it, it's manifested as, as Clara who won't let him, who pushes him to to man up and win. But that's, it's him. It's a, it's a part of his own self, right? Uh, competing to, to keep fighting yeah. or to give up. And he sells that beautifully. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, just a little peek into the crystal ball of the future. Um, you know, there's not a direct reference to this episode, uh, but in some of what was playing out in the recent 60th anniversary specials, I was thinking about this episode so much that part of him that wants to just rest, mm-hmm. that that wants to give up for once, like thematically, um, that that is so infused in the character and it, you're going to benefit from this for a long time. I think it's so cool that this is one of your first looks at the doctor. Uh, Cause that's something they, they play with in Rose, the beginning of new who they're playing with it up until the most recent episodes. So mm. it, it's really fascinating because this, this is not the doctor's first rodeo. This is not his first time. <laughs> Uh, experiencing time and finality in in unique ways, so great, great stuff. All right, uh, we'll have some, we'll have some more grim, deep thematic stuff to talk about later. But we talked about the gravitas. I just want to talk about, uh, you know, where did you see Peter Capaldi's comic ability come through? Uh, because the balance is is what makes him so special to me. Yeah, and you know, uh, I was interested to see this question because he isn't particularly jokey. In fact, he's got nobody to play mm-hmm. off of and nobody to make laugh around him or to react to anything he says or does. So it's not that he's jokey, but there is this undeniable wit. He's processing mm-hmm. everything he's going through with an incredible intelligence and with that intelligence, a certain amount of ironic humor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Capaldi really sells that pretty well. And then to your point, he's downright silly. In that moment mm-hmm. where he's sharing a childhood memory and almost like the child comes out of him in that moment. Oh, his yeah. His face changes, his <laughs> eyes light up a little bit differently. And then there's a few, a few smirks, a few moments where he gives us a smile and a laugh. And it's and it's all charm. 
right? So mm-hmm. maybe I, I can't, on this example alone, without pretending I don't know anything else but else about Peter Capaldi, I would say perhaps he doesn't come across as immediately humorous, but a deeply mm-hmm. uh, charming man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've got three on my list. I've got two here. One I'm going to save for later. Uh, but in terms of humor that he lands for me, and I think you're right that it's wit. You know, there, we can always tie it back to something meaningful. It's not just joking for the sake of joking. Uh, but early on, he's trying to get through that door. Um, you know, he says, you can't make a psychic link with a door. They're very cross. And he talks directly to the door. All that knocking. And it's never for you. Is is such a fun way to look at a door. <laughs> if you are just a little bit nice, he says again, <laughs> so charming. Man, I wrote that down because I wasn't sure if we'd get to it. That was yeah, a big yeah. moment for me in the episode of like, who is this guy? When I was young and... Yeah. <laughs> what is he? Uh, when I was young and telepathic. Yeah, when I was young and telepathic. I'm like, who is this guy and what can he do? <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's wild. He's got quite a history. She's got quite a history. On our Slack channel, Chris, and the, the Doctor Who channels, uh, some folks were piecing together the Doctor's long history with Harry Houdini. The doctor gets around, man. Is that a really thing? Does. Is he boys with Houdini? Absolutely. You know, and uh, it would seem that he's boys with Houdini. It eventually it would seem that there's at least one romantic entanglement uh, with Houdini, if not multiple. So Lovely. Yeah, uh, we've never seen it on screen, I don't think. And uh, my, my other chuckle was just for uh, the Brothers Grimm. They're lovely fellows. They're on my darts team. I'm so curious. I was like, is there more to that? Or was that just a, a one-off comment? Or has he, in fact, spent some time throwing throwing pointies with, with the Brothers Grimm? I think the beautiful thing about the Doctor is they, the Doctor exists on such a grand scale. Um, it's a little bit open to your interpretation how often the Doctor is referencing like a real relationship that has been maintained over time. And when the Doctor is just bullshitting, because... Mm. Every version of the doctor is great at bullshitting to buy time. Like it's, it's a a classic doctor trait. Can I, can I ramble on and on and distract and be gathering data and be quietly assessing the situation? Like, you know, you pointed out earlier, checking the gravity, checking the position of the stars, Mm. et cetera. Uh, You know, in a way that, you know, the average audience member is not perceiving it. And there's so often a fun twist, you know, whether it's Peter Capaldi uh, or, you know, Jodie Whittaker suddenly having a big revelation, you know, the vibe and the energy might be a little bit different, but they're all so good at it, whether it's a quieter, more cerebral doctor or, you know, one of the the high energy sort of like I'm bouncing around the room doctors, they, they all have their way of doing it, which is great. All right. I've got a question I, I have to ask. I don't think we can linger here for too long because you're coming into who is a newbie. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to get carried away spoiling things for you. You have never met Clara. To what extent did that relationship come through for you, coming into it without really any background or pre-existing relationship? What what worked? What didn't? What questions do you have? Um, so I, in general, uh, I think I explained this to you in some of our exchanges pre-episode, but I'm watching the episode and, and it's so apparent how much the doctor cared for this woman, cares for this woman, Clara. And it's also really apparent that she had a deep, uh, a meaningful impact on him, right? She 
affected him in some way. She wasn't just the person he spent time with, but she affected him. I wonder if he wasn't his best self with her. That was kind of the vibe I was getting off this guy. Um, and I think I explained to you that I couldn't tell if it was romantic or with the seeming age gap, uh, more father, daughter, mentor, mentee. Um, what was very apparent to me, what was totally obvious was that this person was somebody he spent a ton of meaningful time with, that this person was a companion. Like I know enough from pop culture to know that's formally what the partner to the doctor is called without being able to better nail down the nature of their relationship. A companion was the best descriptor I could really come up with. Um, yeah. And I, I felt that was not necessarily in the moments where she's on screen because she's mostly got her back to you and she's drawing on a chalkboard, right? And she's just a manifestation yeah. of his own psyche and his own processing of this, uh, whatever problem he's facing. But it was in the moments where he's speaking to her, uh, when he's desperate, when he's calling out to her in the midst of uh, those scary moments. I think even uh, looking at her, her portrait, there's a look that comes over his face before he analyzes the age of it, just seeing it there. Mm -hmm. It's quite obvious how deeply connected these two people were. And then finally, she appears on screen, right? She physically manifests in his mind. She lays a single hand on his cheek to tell him to get off his arse. But yeah. she, by contrast to her, uh, her back turned physical presence, which was cold and detached mm -hmm. um, and very logical, right? Constantly pushing him to, to logic mm -hmm. his way through this thing. In that moment, her actual physical presence her face was so warm. The way she looked at him was so tender. I was just immediately mm -hmm. sold on whatever time these two people shared together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, listen, I, I am a Clara fan. Um, I don't think I'd put her down as my number one companion of all time. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of different reasons for that. I think, I think there are some legitimately good questions to ask about how well Stephen Moffat can, can write female characters is, mm. is a question worth asking. Um, I think also without getting into spoilers, I would say of any companion ever in the history of Doctor Who, uh, no one has a more complicated character in terms of like lore and big swings and, and twists and timey wiminess. Clara comes with a lot of baggage and some really, you know, some some polarizing lore based decisions in the Doctor Hooniverse, um, you know that that I think I have a higher opinion of than some fans. I really appreciate uh, Jenna Coleman's performance as as Clara, and I, I was always a fan. If your new Doctor Who fandom catches fire and you make your way through New Who, you're going to have a lot of questions for me the first time you see this actress appear again. <laughs> Really? So that's all I'll say for now. But you're gonna have you're gonna have a lot of questions for me when when you encounter Lara for the first time. <laughs> and I, I I cannot wait for it. <laughs> One last thing I do want to mention, uh, because I don't know if it will be relevant as we continue to discuss, but I was very intrigued by his his referring to her as teacher. Mm. Because if anything, I would imagine that traditionally the the dynamic is the inverse of that, that if anything, he's perhaps mentor, she's mentee, he's leading the dynamic. But he was very open to whatever it is that she had to, to teach him. And that was what I think gave me the impression that she had such a an impact on him, an effect on him in their time together. Um, but also, 
she just appeared like a school teacher to me once he kept calling her teacher and she was constantly at the blackboard. And then she appears with like her nice little like girl next door, Bob. She was very much like, Oh yeah, that's, that's your second grade teacher right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good. I'm, I'm just going to say good instincts. And then probably the, the thematic weight of calling her a teacher is even more important, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, good, good instincts, Chris. <laughs> Can't wait to learn more. All right. Okay, there is all sorts of talk about something called the hybrid in this episode. Uh, it's a dangerous secret. The doctor knows who or what the hybrid is. At the end of the episode, he claims to be the hybrid. Do you have any thoughts, questions, or theories, or confusion about this? <laughs> uh, you know, I think it fits into a sort of, at least a facet of the prophecy trope, right? He mentions previously there were mm-hmm. prophecies, stories, legends, even. Um, and so I was getting real chosen one vibes, you know, coming to bring balance. Um, that was the vibe I was getting, right? This hybrid, whatever yeah. it really is, is, is believed by some to be a, a bringer of mm-hmm. some ultimate state, whether it's destruction or peace, like this person's going to end all of the, the conflict, all of the war one way or the other. Yeah. Now, the the announcement of this left me so many questions. What's a time Lord? What's a time war? What's a Dalek? All of those things. But in general, I think yeah. I had a basic understanding from genre storytelling in general, about how this hybrid yeah. must fit into the lore. Yeah. And all I was going to say is don't get too hung up on it. Um, a staple of new who is they always feel the need to bake in these little mysteries, sometimes mysterious terms and things like that. Uh, if you make it through season nine of Eccleston, they're not trying to hide them. So I don't even think it's a spoiler to say you're going to keep hearing and seeing references to the phrase bad wolf uh, over and over again. Uh, it, it's possible you've even seen a visual depiction of this somewhere and out in the universe through osmosis of of nerds posting images online. Uh, but yeah, so the hybrids in a long line of those. Some, some of these mysteries land in really organic and fulfilling ways. Some of them feel a little bit like red herrings or or have twists that that are less fulfilling than others. But but yeah, you, your instincts are great. Once again, it's not something you need to get too hung up about or, or worry too much about. Interesting to hear you say that, because I, I would have guessed this was like the or a through line from like the beginning to the end of who. Yes and no. I, I think some of your broader strokes about. Um, the doctor's story, it's always, it's always getting more and more complicated. There are new twists and turns. You know, there was a, a new piece. Of, again, I won't tell you what it is, but there was a big new lore revelation towards the end of Jodie Whittaker's run about the doctor on a long term scale that 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 was polarizing. It, it's something that I, I feel pretty OK about, but it was also something I thought they might abandon moving to a new showrunner in the 60th anniversary. Uh, but they are not. They've kept that lore front and center. So uh, they find new ways to add new mystery and and weight to the Doctor. And and once, once you've got more who under your belt, I will tell you my personal theory about the Doctor that I would love to see come to fruition someday if they ever end the series. But that that's not worth getting into now. What were some design elements that were successful here in this episode could be costumes effects cinematography staging you know this episode looks pretty good it's not the the budget of a big film uh but there's there's still some good choices in here what stands out to you no it it does look good honestly and i think that it looks good in a way that reminds me of things that i have loved in my life and i hope that 
folks who love who don't take any of these things the wrong way because I mean them as compliments, mm-hmm. but like Spy Kids. Remember the way that first Spy Kids movie looked and felt? You know, I've got to confess, I never saw Spy Kids. Perhaps this oh. is a future episode. Oh, <laughs> that's a future episode for sure. Um, it, everything's very tactile, right? The castle mm-hmm. that he's in, every prop, every every bit of the set, whether it's the big gears inside those sort of amber cages, um, it all felt like I could reach out and touch it, and it would be right there, that it had texture and it, and it was real. Um, I love that that vibe. So it was it was that set that immediately stood out to me. The um, the big wide shots of the changing castle were cool, but it was when you were in the mm-hmm. castle and you were feeling the space that Capaldi was occupying that I really enjoyed. And then I liked the the campy nature of the monster. Mm-hmm. Those hands are silly looking in a really good way, like in a really oh yeah scary way. I didn't want those hands anywhere near me. And every time they wrapped around. The doctor's face in the end each time that he had to let it kill him i was just so sorry that he had to let it touch him um the flies were hunting to me i felt that that motif was really powerful throughout whether he was looking at a fly on a screen or experiencing the flies in and around that monster that motif worked really really well for me um selling the, mm-hmm. the horror vibes of it all and then what else did i highlight here oh all these first person perspectives that that mm-hmm. brought you into the the horror genre of it all whether it was a perspective looking at the screen or the perspective of the screen itself, looking into the, the castle world. Um, those moments were disturbing and, and discomforting in a, in a mm-hmm. effective way. Yeah. I, I love that you're talking about the tactile nature of this episode because I hadn't been back to this season for a while. And, and, you know, when you become a Whovian, uh one thing that people like to talk about uh, is, are the opening credits. Uh, they've changed so much over the years. The The basic song is there, but it gets, maybe some new orchestral flourishes or changes, or they go back to basics or they play up the sci-fi sounds or they replace them. And we're almost always getting a, a spacey sort of psychedelic, uh, you know, setting for the, for the TARDIS spinning through those opening credits. Uh, but, but yeah, this was the season of this very geary clockworky uh, sequence, which was, which was somewhat of a departure so that's really baked into like the the DNA. I think of this whole season and the Capaldi run in a unique way. So I, I love that this, you know, probably the best Capaldi episode Heaven Sent reflects that in such a direct way. Oh yeah, I would have guessed because I, I love the opening credits. I put it in my notes. The song I was like, oh yeah, this is sci-fi. This has got a good vibe. I I was loving it. Yeah, I assumed the gears were like part and parcel of Doctor Who. That it was you know iconography of the of the ip because it's there in the opening credits but then also the gears are all throughout this castle it's an important part of how this machinery works it's basic machinery and then in the end the monster collapse and he's all gears inside mm-hmm. so i i would have thought that gears were like a really important doctor who motif uh, all throughout the runs yeah they're you know I, I think they can fit i think it's another moffat thing he wrote several of my favorite episodes of, of Doctor Who in the first four seasons. And uh, there's one one season two episode, I believe, that, that has some clockwork creatures that, that are really memorable. Um, so, yeah, I think it's partly a Moffat thing. I think it fits the vibe. But, yeah, there's this this tactile sort of thing going on. 
Um, but yeah, what a cool design for this place. Uh, you know, Capaldi's doctor says it's a killer puzzle box designed to scare me to death and I'm trapped inside it. Must be Christmas. <laughs> Must be Christmas. That was a moment of, of levity as well that I should have highlighted earlier when we we're talking about humor because that was really brilliantly delivered. But yeah, I, I love the melding of like this this old timey castle vibe, but yet you've got these these cold screens everywhere, constantly showing the position of the creature moving forward. Yeah, um, the, the screens gave me like incredible. asylum vibes, right? Instead of being medieval castle, they made it feel very asylum-y in a disturbing way. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one thing I didn't mention were the skulls. I had it in my notes and I don't yeah. want to forget. Man, drowning would suck. As far as ways to die, <laughs> drowning isn't on like my top five or anything, right? So when he hits the water and you're dealing with like, he's probably not going to drown, but it's, you know, for the character. And then the skulls come into relief and you realize that he's just floating amongst a sea full of people who have already potentially, you know, possibly drowned. Mm-hmm. Truly horrifying, a brilliant choice. And then as the skulls reappear elsewhere throughout, right? When he's up on the parapet and the skull is ever present. Um, great choice. Great, great choice. Are there any other just really horrific elements of this episode that stand out to you? Because we've got the skulls. You mentioned some of these horror shots. Is there anything else here that that just adds to that horrific vibe that, that's a part of this episode? So there was there were two other moments where they did mm-hmm. genuine jump scares. Right, He's in that little courtyard and he's got the, mm. the shovel. Um, and first he's shocked that the, the creature has set a trap. He thinks that it's up high. He's got an hour and then it's at the door and it, and it bursts through in a way that catches mm-hmm. the doctor by surprise, which is rare throughout. Despite this whole thing being a mystery, he never really shows any sense of surprise except for mm-hmm. in these, these jump scare moments, right? So that was horrifying. And then again, just the idea of digging a grave, which it didn't need to be that. It occurred to me as he was digging that hole that he was digging it like a grave. Mm-hmm. He was digging this perfectly square, deep hole mm-hmm. as opposed to a round hole, which you or I might like, you know, by default dig. Right, um, right. So anybody who's digging their own grave, that that sets me on the edge of my seat, waiting to see like what's going to be at the bottom of that thing he's digging. Is it mm-hmm. going to be a coffin with himself in it? And then instead of that, there's a little bit of a clue. And then another jump scare. Those hands come yeah. flying through the dirt and he has <laughs> the back of the hole. Um uh, that got me good. That was a nice jump scare moment. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I'll add to the the horror of it all. Now, it had been a while since I watched this episode, and this shot was didn't necessarily stick with me, but it really struck me re-watching it for the podcast. Uh, when he's explaining the time loop, how he's managed to crawl as he's dying for a day and a half back to that teleportation room uh, so that he can reactivate the machine and get like that fresh copy of himself. Uh, he delivers the line, all you need for energy is something to burn. And as he's saying this, he's attaching these electrodes to his head. And it's a genuinely troubling shot of his head. And we've already seen the ocean full of skulls and pieced together that these are his skulls from first 7,000 iterations and up to 2 billion. And uh, I, I believe I said four and a half billion in the summary. Uh, we don't get that number until the next episode hell-bent but uh, so i believe I, the last on-screen number we get is two billion here and then in the next episode he he states four and a half billion so it turns out it was even more of an impossible to grasp time period 
awful. Yeah, the, I, I noted that in your recap and didn't question it. That amount of time is so scary. Um, a, a strong childhood memory for me. I can't tell you how old I was, but I was quite young. You're in bed late at night. You're not tired. You're not falling asleep. You're thinking about the world and what you don't understand. And, you know, I was thinking about what dying means. I was thinking about, you know, I had been taught about concepts like heaven in a really literal sense. And uh, I'll never forget I was going through this logic in my head as a small child. And I terrified myself when I started trying to conceptualize the idea of existing forever. Like, what is an eternity? genuinely terrified me i don't know if that's an experience you've had uh you've had as well but i'll never forget that it's a part of me to this day (laughs) whoa i I mean i get that i can't say that i honestly have experienced it but i i get that right (laughs) trying to wrap your head around uh eternity is is quite a bit i think uh yeah i find life in like days are exhausting i can't imagine sure if there was no end point yeah um, hey, quick plot question related to this. When the doctor pieces everything together and he realizes that bird means the story and he's in this loop and he's discovering more and more terrifying numbers of years he's been through this, he says in this moment, I can remember it. I can remember it all. And I don't think there's a fully satisfying answer to this to be found in the surrounding episodes. What was your take on that? Do you think that he is literally unlocking a memory in some way of all those billions of years or does he have a special ability to maybe conceptualize what that means what was your take on that because i don't think there is a a definitive right or wrong here neil i'm sure you're right that there is not but i think i felt pretty squarely that he was somehow in other plot holes here i think so there are a few nitpicks as far as plot holes throughout this this time loop device sure I had the impression that he remembers each each time, each iteration, each loop, because in that moment with Clary, where he's unraveling, like right mm-hmm. after he, like right as he's figuring it all out, and he realizes it's a, time, it's a time loop and what he has to do. And he's lamenting, why do I have to keep doing it? How much longer can I do this for? And I... It could just be that he's talking about being the doctor in general and all the regenerations and what, however long the doctor has existed. But I think more literally, he's he's unraveling because he's wondering how many more times he can do this thing. That he remembers each mm-hmm. one of his loops through, however long each loop is, I don't know. And I think that to me is a bit of a relief because he only remembers at the very end. If he... Right. And each loop feels like it's relatively short, right? I don't know how long mm-hmm. it takes him to... To get to that point each time but if he could remember the whole time that would be horrifying oh yeah I yeah mean, what about you do you think do you think it's all coming back to him now celine dion style yeah i i'm inclined to take him literally um and i, I love your instincts there because if you watch doctor who you develop a great capacity for uh what we call timey-wimeyness uh, and the Doctor Who universe and, and things stretching and the Doctor's, you know, relationship to time travel energy and this, you know, all sorts of pseudoscience mumbo jumbo. Um, I like to think he can do it. And that that capacity to hold information that a human being could not 
possibly process is part of what I love about the character. So I, I choose to believe that he is fully, uh, yeah, remembering it all in that moment. But I love your distinction about it's in those closing moments as he gets his next few punches in on that diamond wall. I was really unsure about his physical prowess. Mm-hmm. He He's punching that, that harder than diamond mineral in a way that makes any impact at all. But I takes him four billion years to get through it, apparently four and a half billion years. So I don't know if any one of us could do the same, given the opportunity to do yeah. it over and over again. Um, right. So, so definitive strengths, super, super smart, like perhaps um, the, the smartest borderline, not clairvoyant, but um, like he he's 15,000 steps ahead of us all. He's not 10 steps mm-hmm. ahead. He's, he's light years ahead. Um, and so I think that most of his strength lives there. I assume with that probably comes some like craftiness and gadgetry that wasn't on display in this episode. I'm sure that he can cobble together a solution MacGyver, MacGyver style where, where needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't on display here. So I think I can only definitively say that he is like painfully smart. Um, mm-hmm. and then as far as weaknesses, I'm afraid to say it, it feels like he probably has some blind spots because of how arrogant he is. Um, One million percent, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he comes out of that teleporter talking a big game. Like he mm-hmm. is he is ready to take it to whoever. If you had anything to do with her death, you have done fucked up. And I'm sorry, I don't know if we swear on this yep. podcast. But he certainly like seems like he's ready to... <laughs> he's ready to rock. But then... He, <laughs> He sets eyes on that monster just once and he's scared and mm-hmm. he's running scared. He went from, I'm coming to find you. I hope you're ready to, Oh my God, what what the hell is that? And he's, he's out of there. So I feel like his arrogance may be uh, something that leaves him more vulnerable than he realizes. Chris, this is exactly what I had in my notes as well for a weakness. Um, Right. I, I skipped over that opening speech when I did the recap, and I'm really thankful you went back to it because he's talking about this relentlessness of 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 time, of death approaching. It, it It's coming for you and you can run if you want. You can walk if you want, but it's coming. And we get that great speech. And when he first pops out of that teleporter, he says, I am the doctor. I am coming to find you and I will never, ever stop. So he thinks he is the unstoppable force. Mm. And he has to come to this vulnerable revelation by the end of the process that it's not him. There is a force greater than him. And uh, it's a weakness. It's it's also that engaging vulnerability I keep bringing up over and over again. Uh, But yeah, those lines hit so differently once we see him just broken to his core at the end of this episode, like towards the end of the episode. He finds that strength and that desire to win. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah. And uh, again, we're, we're, we've been kind of dancing around this one all day, but if I had started who with this episode, uh, it's a hell of a bird. I think this is a hell of a, a hero introduction. Um, how, how does this stack up for you as the introduction to a, a hero? Yeah, if this was, say, the origin story, the first story you're ever going to witness with this character, I don't understand how a person could not want to, to know more, to see more. I, I found myself curious about what kinds of baddies would go up against this type of a hero. Um, and mm-hmm. so because he was so obviously beyond us, so inhuman, but then 
in all that we've witnessed him live through, so desperately human, it, in that way, really worked for me uh, amongst the, the best of hero introductions. Because they should feel distant, and they should feel otherworldly and godly and bigger than us, but also like us. Yes, yes, 1,000 times yes. I agree with all of that. Um, I also put in yet another one of my humorous lines here. Uh, he has that great line about, I hate gardening. What sort of person has a power complex about flowers? It's dictatorship for inadequates. Or to put it another way, it's dictatorship. Um, <laughs> I love a hero that wants to fight for the little guy, that wants to fight against the abuse of power. Um, that hell of a bird exclamation with the triumphant, triumphant score in the background. The, the score... Um, especially when you get to your Matt Smith era, I think they were like, just, they laid it on the thickest with giving Matt Smith these speeches with that hero score popping in, in the backgrounds, uh, that that's probably my favorite thing about the Matt Smith run, but, but you see a moment like that here at the end of the episode. Um, but yeah, that hell of a bird line. And then his final words, uh, tell him I came the long way around the hybrid destined to conquer Gallifrey and stand in its ruins. It's me. What a badass! What a badass moment. Um, and finally, finally, Chris, we've, we've been talking about this as well. Uh, vulnerability of, of this character is really interesting. What was the most human thing about the doctor? You know, we, we know he's inhuman, but what is, what is the most human thing about him? Him facing the loss of a person. Yep. Right, a person close to him. And later in the episode, Clara has to explain, like, you're not the only person who's ever lost someone. Mm -hmm. Might feel like it, but you gotta move forward. He's not just processing loss or grief, like I think most of us are probably familiar familiar with. He's doing it alone. Mm -hmm. He's he's totally alone. And I think when you're in mourning, uh, especially immediately after the moments of loss, the last thing you want to be is alone. Right. And so as he's alone with his grief, and then he's coming to terms with all that he is going through, that he's facing his own death, that he is trapped here, that he might be a little in over his head. All of that feels so, so deeply human. Yeah, absolutely. And and you just unlocked something for me. You know, the doctor says there are two events that every living being experiences, but don't remember, you know, birth and death. He asks, is that, is that why we stare into the eye sockets of skulls? Are we asking, does it hurt? Um, you know, he says living being. So even this, this being that, that lives for a stretch of time and that it's tough for humans to fathom, who has this regeneration energy. Uh, on the one hand, it makes the doctor more distant from death. On the other hand, you could argue that the doctors died a bunch of times. And, and had to be, you know, reborn in a certain sense. There's this complexity to it. Um, if we're talking inside baseball, Doctor Who nerdiness, like like one thing they had just sorted out going into the 12th Doctor's run is this lingering question for Who nerds was, you know, there was supposed to be a limit on the number of regenerations a Time Lord could experience before they ran out. And we were coming up against that. And, you know, they at this point, they had worked their way around it. But, you know, one smaller question the doctor is is grappling with is like, how am I even here? 
do I now have unlimited regenerations? Am I going to keep regenerating forever? Is mm. you know, uh, he doesn't quite know what the future holds because he's broken the rule that he thought existed. So there's almost like a meta level beyond this <laughs> this endless repetition. But yeah, and just maybe the the simplest thing he says: the the day you lose someone isn't the worst. At least you've got something to do. It's it's like lingering and and the loneliness or the, or the loss. And you can find joy through that when you find healthy ways to express it. But there's also accepting something, having a chance to take the time to let it sink in. And and in a lot of ways, the doctor just lived through four and a half billion days of not having the time to process his grief properly. Um, yeah, so a lot on the doctor's plate, uh, for sure. Um, Chris, as as always, once again, you've just blown my mind with your ability to to dig deep into a piece of media. We've we've gone longer than I ever could have imagined. Uh, and that just makes me happy because it means I can revisit this conversation now whenever I like. But before we go, do you have any any parting thoughts, any takeaways you didn't get to cover? Uh, no, no, nothing that can't be saved for future who episodes. That's my biggest takeaway was I really yeah. enjoyed this episode. I can absolutely validate that Heaven Sent works on its own as yeah. like a short film. Like if you put that thing in front of me and said, this is it, it exists in isolation. You will not know what. Yeah before there is nothing that comes after it absolutely works it's a tremendously enjoyable narrative so well portrayed um and so yeah that's the last i'll say about that awesome and i'll end on a light note uh i asked you about a sonic screwdriver earlier believe it or not chris you've seen one i have you have uh you would not guess it uh, because there is a brief period where one of the most controversial decisions in all of New Who history uh, was when Peter Capaldi's doctor was like, it doesn't have to look like a screwdriver. It could be anything like sunglasses. And you get to see him briefly scan the wall, the glasses. So they were the, the sonic sunglasses uh, for a very brief period of time. So you you got to catch a moment of sonic screwdriver controversy, which they reverted away from pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm kind of annoyed by that. And I don't even have a vested interest in the sonic <laughs> screwdriver yet. When that when he put those things on, they were so out of place. They felt anachronistic yeah. to like yeah. him. You know, he's in this velvety, uh, mm -hmm. swanky look. He's in this castle. Those sunglasses, I was like, Johnny Cage, what is happening? I was yeah, very disturbed yeah. by those glasses. I'm glad to know that it bothered fans too. Yeah, well, it wasn't my favorite decision, I'll admit. But uh, but here we are. Uh, so, so before we officially end the episode, Chris, you've already answered my question of will there be more Doctor Who in the future? Um, I was going to ask you uh, where you want to start, but, you know, off mic, you told me that you, you were kind of putting your, your fate in my hands. So... Uh, I'm going to recommend, I think you should go back to 2005, Christopher Eggleston, uh, the first season of new who Rose, um, you know, go in with the understanding that the camp is very heavy with this, with this one. Uh, some of the camp is fun. Some of the camp is, is very dumb in this episode. Uh, but as someone like myself who loves Batman returns, I know that you know how to have fun with camp. Um, and you can look past it. And yeah, once you've got that season under your belt, let's chat again. And maybe maybe we'll pick an episode to dig into. 
uh, or something else, maybe we'll, we'll try to look at a cross section, but I'll, I'll see what your impression was. And I think we'll know the answer at that time. You are the doctor. I am your companion. <laughs> Let's ride. All right. And, uh, you know, as always, I want to give you a chance to plug, uh, you know, if you have any projects coming up you want to talk about, or if you simply want to uh, plug where people can find you on social media or anything like that, uh, please let us know how we can find you. Yeah, thanks, Randy. No big projects coming up, but please, uh, if you want to hear more of my innate ramblings uh, or see some cute pictures of my daughter, please follow me on Instagram. You'll find me at Chris underscore Ingersoll. It's Chris like Kringle. I, I promise you'll find me. Awesome. Thank you so much. And you can find me, Randy Elaine, over on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Elaine. You can find a link to my Blue Sky profile from there. I've been having fun on that uh, social media page. And and also, I've been living my best life uh, talking about entertainment stuff, uh, contributing to the Pop Break Today. It's a great independently run entertainment website. They also run a ton of podcasts, including... My music podcast, Every Pod You Cast, which is a disc-by-disc exploration of the discography of The Police. Uh, So we've got two episodes out for you to find through the Pop Break Today feed, and I hope you will check it out. Chris, I know we've got a lot of great conversations in our future. I can't wait for the next one. Have a fantastic night. Thanks again. Thanks, Randy. Can't wait, brother. All right, we will see you next time on Media Lit to talk about some more great literature. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.